It was anything but just another dog day of August. Anyone who saw it knew the world was about to change. It was the eighth day of August, 1908. Wilbur Wright flew a plane demonstrating to a public, and that's when the world suddenly realized that man could fly. The eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, David McCullough helps us understand the men whose genius and determination transformed how we travel forever. We'll get an intimate look at the Wright brothers in just a bit. Plus, travel writer Tim Neville reports on visiting today's version of the fabled Silk Road in Central Asia. All the monuments are kind of a little bizarre. You know, the buildings are obviously strange. But then you meet the people and your heart just melts. Take flight with the Wright brothers. Explore Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and get inspired to find exotic adventures of your own in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. They were just a couple of bicycle makers who lived in Dayton, Ohio, a little over a century ago. But they set their sights on the sky and eventually figured out how to build a contraption that could take us all into the wild blue yonder. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We have a special treat in the hour ahead. Pulitzer Prize-winning author David McCullough joins us in just a bit to talk about his latest book, about the Wright Brothers. We'll also get a report on what it's like today along the route of the legendary Silk Road. For centuries, caravans traded spices and fabrics from China and India to Byzantium and Rome. Travel writer Tim Neville is just back from the crossroads of Central Asia, and he shares tales of his adventures in Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan with us in the hour ahead. But first, let's check in with our listeners. We know you've been having some pretty amazing adventures of your own. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Ed's calling in from Chino Hills, California. Hi, Ed. Hello there, Rick. Thanks for your call. Where have you been traveling lately? You know, for the last five years, my wife and I have been headed to Europe. So uh, this summer, we decided to go outside of our comfort zone, and we traveled eight days in Muslim countries, five Mm. in Turkey, and three in Morocco. And how was that? It was a great cultural experience for us. You know, you kind of get that vision of what a Muslim country would be like. And when we were in Morocco and in Turkey, it kind of flipped it upside down. We ran into so many Muslims that were, you know, quite normal, that are living their lives day to day, trying to make a living. And... Um, you know, it kind of melted all those fears away that we had initially. Yeah, you know, it is, when you travel to a, a Muslim country, you realize what an impact hysterical media can have wiring somebody's perception of a billion people. And, of course, there's some exciting news you can make out of extremist Muslims and so on, but I just love the value of travel to let you just go to a a moderate Muslim country. You chose two very good examples, Turkey and Morocco, and to see, you know, countless people just going about their lives, not even thinking much about the United States. They're thinking about their, you know, their their aging mother or their kids getting into school or their upcoming wedding or all sorts of beautiful things just like we have in our lives. And and to travel there, you don't need famous museums. All you need to do is walk through the street. And it's um, it's just a beautiful experience, right? And we met so many people that wanted to talk about their religion and you know arts too. So mm-hmm. it worked uh, very well. By the way, I, I met you while I was in uh, Istanbul. I was in front of the Blue Mosque, walking by with my book out, and you stepped up. Of course, that day you happened to be a six-five, uh, about a two hundred and fifty-pound Turkish man. He stepped up and said, hi, I'm Rick Steves. The Turkish man? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're quite famous over there, evidently. So you Mm -hmm. spent five days in Turkey and three days in Morocco. What cities were you in, and how'd you get there? In Turkey, we spent five nights in Istanbul. Great experience. I would definitely go back there because we only got through about half the sites we really wanted to see. did take one day off and flew down to Ephesus. Uh-huh. 
And that was a great day. We hired a local tourist company, spent the entire day with them. Very, very inexpensive. I always find that the guides in places like Turkey are far less expensive than European guides and far more important for your sightseeing understanding because we don't come from that culture and there's lots that we would miss otherwise. And with a local guide on your side, assuming he's reputable, you have a shield from people who are trying to rip you off and you have a a person who can connect you with contemporary issues and a sounding board and somebody you can ask hard questions to, uh, you know, because there are some very interesting issues that Turks are dealing with. Other than that, we do a lot of city tours and city guides. And true, why spend thousands of dollars to go somewhere and stay there and not really get immersed in that situation, that culture? You hit it, Ed. You spend a lot of money to get there, and for $100, you can have your private guide for three hours and actually have that luxury of your own expert. By the way, I've enjoyed using a lot of private guides in Ephesus. It's, it's my favorite uh, ancient site, the, uh, the great city of Ephesus. It's a Greek and Roman city and famous from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and so on. You know, in Morocco, uh, we really stepped out of the comfort zone. We flew into Fez. You dropped right into Fez in the middle of Morocco, one of the most exciting and intense towns in the country, and you survived <laughs> it. It was a great time. Totally, totally different, something that you never see in the United I States. I love it. Good going. And you and your wife enjoyed it, and you you enjoyed this opportunity to humanize um, a little bit of the Muslim world, and then when you look at the news when you get home, you realize it's not all that way. That's true. Good for you. Hey, Ed, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Okay, take care. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now I'm doing one of my favorite things, swapping travel stories with you. I always love hearing about your latest travel adventures. We're at 877-333-RICK. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Avalon in Nashville, Tennessee writes, One of our most memorable experiences in Switzerland was spending the night in the hotel at Mutas Murago. M-U-O-T-T-A-S-M-U-R-A-G-L. The hotel is a funicular ride up above a train stop and is easily accessible if you're traveling on the Bernina Express. That's one of the scenic uh, train rides across the Swiss Alps. The stay at the top of the mountain was so peaceful, quiet, and romantic. At night, most everyone goes down the mountain, leaving only the guests and a couple of employees to enjoy the solitude and the clear night skies on the tip-top of that alp. We were there in mid-June a few years ago and woke to a beautiful snowfall. There was even enough snow for some guests to make a snowman. Avalyn, thank you so much for this report about an opportunity to stay in a traditional hotel on the top of a mountain that you can get to by funicular. That's typical of the alpine thrills available in Switzerland. Lisa's calling in from Columbia, South Carolina. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. My son won an art contest, and one of the prizes was a trip to Turkey. And I get to go with him on this trip. And I have been to... France, I've been to England, I've been to Italy, I've been to the countries that a lot of Americans have been to, but I don't know many people that have been to Turkey, Mm. and I want to know, Hmm. what is it like for an American to go to Turkey? Well, first of all, that's quite an art prize. Your son won (laughs) a trip to Turkey, and he gets to take his mom along, and uh, I just love Istanbul, and, and you will too when you get there. It's just a carnival of cultural surprises and tasty little memories and, and crazy fun people you meet. And, and Turkey has an image problem, Lisa. That's, I think that's the problem. You know, it's, it's a, kind of a scary corner of the world to a lot of people who don't travel very much. And there was a movie a long time ago called Midnight Express that talked about an American who was you know, smuggling drugs and got found and was tossed into a hellish Turkish prison. Well... I just contributed to Turkey's image problem. And Greece and Turkey have had a problem historically for generations, and the Turks often come out on the low end of that from a public relations point of view. But I would say when you go to Turkey, you're going to find it is so rewarding. Now, I remember when I was uh, 18 years old asking my parents if I could go to Europe. They said, well, you can go to Europe, but promises you won't go to Turkey. You know, they were scared of going to Turkey, too. But uh, in my 20s, I, I found myself going to Turkey as the finale for every European trip. And it's always been a place that I just love. I just would highly encourage you to not be afraid to go to Turkey. It's a place that, that really just blows people away in a beautiful way. Well, we're really looking forward to it, and, and for that reason, because it's, it's a little bit beyond probably what I would have ever planned on my own, so I'm excited about it. Yeah, and, and take the initiative now, because you'll want to remember the guides are often 
all over Europe, not just Turks, but guides are corrupted by their interest in earning money on kickbacks from their shoppers. Mm-hmm. And you want to not let them just take you shopping all the time because they're just <laughs> getting kickbacks. Uh, do remember that local guides are fun to hire. I'm a big fan of hiring local guides in Turkey, and they're not very expensive at all, and they make a huge difference, especially with your teenage son, because he'll be uh, being able to pal around with somebody uh, who's in their 20s, who's uh, really interested in the West and speaks English, and uh, there'll be a sort of a connection there, which would be a lot of fun. In fact, if your son has a group of uh, student friends there, you might want to hire a few young local guides who are just independent business people looking for work and for a very inexpensive fee, they will uh, take the whole group around and you don't need to see all the famous sites. You can just walk through the streets and have these experiences and these kids can take you into the bath and take you into the spice market and take you into a, a little coffee house or a tea house where everybody's playing backgammon. Be sure your son learns how to play backgammon before because okay. you and him, one of my daily uh, routines when I'm in Turkey is don't go to bed without going down to the tea house and challenging a local person to a game of backgammon. That sounds great. Thank you very much. All right, have fun and let us know how your trip goes. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, thank you. We have an email from Louise in Northampton, Massachusetts, and she, she shares a, a fascinating connection she had with Italy by visiting a relative. Louise writes, My traveling companion's aunt in San Ambrosio, Italy, opened my eyes to the history of the area. Hearing her talk about sharing her childhood home with occupying German forces during World War II, having her explain how the townspeople had to sleep in the hills at night because the homes might have been bombing targets, hearing her talk about her father's work as a stonemason and sculptor working in the beautiful pink marble of the region, I could have listened to her all night. Wow, Louise really struck on something there, and it wasn't even her relative, it was her traveling companion's aunt. You don't need next of kin over there. With any creativity, you can find locals to connect with. You are a blessing to them, and they'll be a blessing to your trip. They will make everything much more vivid because you can't understand the history of a region without talking to the people who lived that history. And there's lots of people with vivid memories who are eager to share the stories that happened right there. It's you, Lily Ma. Ed in Manassas, Virginia, writes us. He says, A couple years ago, we discovered the beautiful Dermitor National Park in upcountry Montenegro. That's in former Yugoslavia. The adjacent community of Zabjak, that's Z-A-B-L-J-A-K, is a great base for exploring the numerous hiking trails and scenic lakes that pepper the mountain landscapes of Montenegro. The nearby Zava River, S-A-V-A, is also a magnet for those in the know, seeking a whitewater rafting experience in unspoiled and pristine surroundings. I definitely plan to go there again and stay longer next time. So Ed's talking about the wonders of Montenegro. A lot of people go to Croatia, and Montenegro's just a couple hours away from Dubrovnik, and as Ed found, you'll find some beautiful discoveries of your own in that emerging destination in former Yugoslavia. His best-selling books on American history have won him wide acclaim as one of America's best-loved writers. Historian David McCullough joins us with the story of the Wright brothers and how they opened the world's horizons. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
The Washington Post calls him one of America's greatest living writers. He's also one of the country's most popular authors of American history. David McCullough is marking 50 years with his publisher, Simon & Schuster, with his latest bestseller, The Wright Brothers. His research unveils a portrait of the brothers as work-obsessed, plain-speaking, sometimes socially awkward inventors whose lives were dedicated to making aviation work, despite the odds that their latest contraption could actually kill them. David McCullough has joined us in the Travel with Rick Steve studio to help us better understand Wilbur and Orville Wright and how they changed the world. David, thanks for coming by, and congratulations on another wonderful book. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and I want to congratulate you on your work, which I follow with greatest interest and pleasure. I think we both appreciate public broadcasting. We do, but we also appreciate the importance of travel, Yeah, of going places where things happened and understanding what happened and why and the people there, and the refreshing, invigorating spirit that it gives one's outlook on life. I try to go everywhere that any event in any of the books that I write took place. And I've stressed that all along, and I've encouraged students that if you want to write about something, go to where it happened. You know, I think I can tell from reading your books that you can relate to the place. Absolutely. You're grounded in the spot. The place is very important, particularly the place where people grew up. What happened on December 17, 1903? And why was that important enough for you to write about the men who made that happen? First of all, where it happened was on the outer banks of North Carolina, which at that time there was no bridge over there. There were no roads. It was sand dunes and beaches and a very small population just barely getting by, primarily fishing. And the Wright brothers went there to test their flying ideas because they needed continuous wind. And there was plenty of wind out there. And they loved the idea of a soft landing on sand, not on rock or hard earth. And there were very few people to be curious and asking too many questions and taking up their time. And they'd never been away from home. They'd never seen the ocean. They traveled over 700 miles from Dayton, Ohio, in their bicycle shop. And it was like nothing they'd ever seen or experienced in their lives, and they loved every minute of it, despite the hurricanes and the sieges of mosquitoes and all the other things that went wrong. It was for them, it was the work they loved to do and their courage and their refusal to give in when they failed and their ingenuity and their attention to detail were all of a sort that we can learn from no matter what we do or no matter what we strive to do. It's amazing. That was... You mentioned in your book that you were 15 years old when Orville died. That's right. I could have known him. You uh, could have known him. And think of what's happened since Oh, absolutely. Then. In, in one lifetime. But that Orville was the one that flew that day, December 17th, very cold day, 20, 25-mile-an-hour winds. And, of course, nobody thought they would succeed. They weren't sure they'd succeed. They never—what it was was they were pioneers. the glider that they had developed and put a motor on it. As a matter of fact, you wrote about that in your book. It almost sounds like a legal responsibility. The first mechanically powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot on board. Right. 120 feet, 12 seconds. That's all it took. Orville. Yes. However, the brothers are taking turns. It was Orville's turn. And they kept on flying that day. And by the end of the day, or close to the end of the day, Wilbur had flown over 500 feet or close to half a mile. So they they really knew they'd done it. That was the day they broke through. Oh, yes. It's one of the most important days in all of history. It changed history. Do you think they knew that that first 120 feet in 12 seconds was the most difficult? And after that, the arc of progress would just zoom up. Remember, they've never tried it before. Right. This is their first time ever to try this machine they've made. And the fact that even though it bounced like a bucking Bronco horse— before it settled down, they knew instantly we've done it. So air is like matter, and they can cruise through it now. Well, they learned to ride the wind. Ride the by, wind. By studying oh. soaring birds. Very simple. You must have read a lot of letters and do this primary research. Did you get a sense, uh, David, in anything that you read that, that they thought much about the future of this, what an impact it would have on domestic travel, on no. tourism? No, they really didn't think much about that. In mm. fact, they were asked, do you think there will be a, a plane that will fly the ocean? They said mm. no. <laughs> but they had a good reason, because in order to have a, an engine that's strong enough to do that, it would have to carry so much gasoline and oh, yeah. so much water that the weight would preclude it. 
well, they hadn't. That was beyond their imagination. They hadn't figured the on an air-cooled engine, oh. which was invented very shortly after by a man named, another American named Charles Lawrence. Now, there were a lot of people trying to figure this out. It seems like there was a frenzy of inventors trying to make a flying machine back then. What do you think were the unique skills that gave the Wright brothers their winning combination? Because they didn't have the big money by the, them. By studying the soaring birds, mm-hmm. watching how they used the ends of their wings, how could they possibly stay up there without flapping their wings? Yeah. Well, these are two bicycle riders. These are two bicycle manufacturers. And they realize it's balance. They're balancing on the wind. We balance on the road. They are balancing on the wind. So how do they control that balance? And how do they bank and turn? So once they figured that out, they created what they call wing warping, where they could twist the wings so that they would could bank and turn ex- almost exactly the way a soaring bird does. So did they complement each other in their skills, Wilbur and Orville, or was one of them more dominant and, and more important? I would say yes to both. Wilbur was the genius. Wilbur was the okay. older brother. He was, he was the boss, the big brother. And he was also truly, literally a genius. Orville was very clever and ingenious mechanically, but he didn't have the reach of mind that Wilbur did. Wilbur was an absolutely amazing human being. So they were the right combination, the, oh, right, yeah. the right duo. They both were. Neither of them ever finished high school. They had no technical training. But it was like homeschooling with their preacher father, right? Well, the preacher father who insisted that they read. Right. This preacher read. father who gave them a full liberal arts education. They had to read history. They read literature. They read, they read everything. You know, a surprise from reading your book was the importance of their sister. We never hear about Catherine, but she was, she was exceptional as well. Well, one of the joys of writing the book was to bring Catherine's front and center stage because she deserves it. Talk about credit long overdue. Right. She was a pistol. She was bright. She was full of ideas. She was full of humor. She was also had a hot temper. She could get wrathy, as she said. She stood about five feet one, but she had no trouble whatsoever holding her own. She was a school teacher, taught Greek and Latin in the local Dayton High School. But she was always there when they needed her, and she kept them on the track. And her letters, which have survived, as theirs have, are the greatest testimony to their father's insistence on using the English language, not only correctly, but effectively. They were incapable of writing a dull letter or a short one. And there, there are thousands of them. The vivid detail in your book is just remarkable. And all I could think is, did these guys write their letters with an appreciation of history? Did they know that, that this might be of some I don't think so. I think their notes, their professional correspondence, their professional papers and presentations to professional groups and so forth, definitely. Mm-hmm. But as far as the family correspondence, it was all very personal, very revealing, very private, and terrific because that's how you can get inside their lives. It's the human beings in this story that interests me most. By the time I was halfway through work on this book, I realized even if they hadn't succeeded, I would have wanted to have written this book. So remarkable are they as human beings. And it's never more apparent than when they went to France. Never more apparent. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullough. He's the author of numerous bestsellers on American history. His books on American presidents, adventures, and inventors have earned him dozens of prestigious awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. His latest work, The Wright Brothers, raced to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. David's website is davidmccullough.com. David, it must have been expensive, and I just can't help but wonder... How did they fund this, this whole mission of theirs? They did everything themselves. First of all, they built everything themselves. They didn't have somebody else build things for them. And the money that they used to spend on their experiments was taken from their rather modest profits from their bicycle shop. They, they just didn't sell bicycles. They made bicycles. And it was a time when bicycling was a big fad, so there right. was big market for so it. That was opportune for them. But to give you an example, the head of the Smithsonian who was a very famous scientist, Samuel Langley, spent something like $50,000 of public money, Smithsonian Institution money, Mm. and another 20,000 of private money that was given to him by wealthy friends to develop his airplane, Aerodrome, he called it, and it did nothing but shoot up in the air and then dive (laughs) into the Potomac River. What the Wright brothers' plane, the plane they flew at Kitty Hawk on that famous day, December 17, 1903, that whole thing cost less than $1,000. They never had any financial backer. 
They never had any great institution or foundation or university behind them. They had no political pull. They did it all themselves, everything. It's a great American story. And they were laughed at. They were ignored. (laughs) They were mocked. Now, did they really, when you look at it from an international point of view and so on, did they deserve the credit for inventing the airplane? Is there any Absolutely question about yes. that? Because no there, was, there was other stuff happening. Yes, and, and there are other people keep claiming, but no, they absolutely did it themselves. And it's all on record. That's the other thing. Some of these other claims, there's nothing, no proof, no photographs, okay. no nothing. So they knew about that. They had a, a little bit of Yes, they, they, they were they very, wanted they wanted to, have, to have their place in history be authentic and provable. How did they work to authenticate? They took photographs of everything they did. So on the cover of your book, this is the first— That's the first flight ever. That's the first flight. It's one of the most historic events in all of history, one of the most historic and important photographs of all of history. And they they had somebody else take it with their camera. That's reproduced from the original glass plate, and it's as sharp and clear as it had been taken yesterday. You know, when we look at that airplane, it looks so frail— how did they land a plane like that on those first? Without, well, they, I mean, were land, must have been they, they were landing on sand, and they're just right. coming. They, they couldn't use wheels. They so just the skidded sand, to a halt. Yes, and they took off on a little railing, like a track, okay. which was composed of two-by-fours. And it all was very primitive. And if you see the original plane, which is on view in the Smithsonian Institution, you wonder how in the world they do it. It's also much bigger than you think it's going to be. This is a big plane. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is author and historian David McCullough. We're talking about his latest bestseller, The Wright Brothers. It's published by Simon & Schuster. David's website is davidmccullough.com. Now, David, this is a travel show, and we're all dreaming about traveling. And it is so clear when, when we read your books, you have traveled and you've been to these places. If we're inspired by the Wright Brothers and your book, what's a travel tip you'd give us? Where should we go to see this stuff? Well, you should definitely go to Kitty Hawk. Right. It's a national park. You can see exactly where they took off. Everything's there. And a wonderful museum. Mm-hmm. And you should definitely go to the Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, where the home that they grew up in, which was all important to their sh- shaping, their, their whole outlook on life. Outside how, of Detroit. How they were raised at home. And the bicycle shop where they built the first airplane that ever flew in the history of the world is right there. And you should go to Paris, and you should go to Le Mans, just southwest of Paris, the racetrack town, where for the first time, Wilbur Wright flew a plane demonstrating to an audience, to a public, that man could fly. It was the eighth day of August in 1908, the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year. And that's when the world suddenly realized man can fly. That's five years later. They were struggling for five years. It took them five years because nobody believed that they could do it. They wouldn't even bother to come look at it. So the French were the ones that said, hey, these guys are something. They'd heard about it, came over and invited (laughs) them to come to Paris. They didn't want to do it. They wanted, they're very patriotic Americans. But our government slammed the door in their face about five times, and they were sick of it, and understandably. Yeah. Whereas the French were keenly interested in aviation, the future of aviation. And once they did that, thousands of people came to Le Mans by the trainload every day from all over France and all over Europe. And you can go there today in the same place where that flight was taken off. You can walk where the, the hotel was at Poe. They also flew down at Poe, which is a beautiful town, way down by the Spanish border. So did they box the plane up and put it on the oh, boat? Oh, yeah. yeah, put it on a boat. And assembled it. Yes, they had to reassemble because yeah. the, the customs, the French customs official. <laughs> there was no box. I have an airplane They uncrated the, the box, and they did it in such a rough, ignorant way that they broke just about everything. Oh, and poor no. Wilbur had to put it all back to really virtually remanufacture it himself right there. So that was Wilbur that went to France, just one of them. Yes, and Wilbur responded to Europe like very few Americans ever have. But suddenly, for the first time, he went into a major art exhibit, art museum, never had seen it. He would take every spare moment he had to go to the Louvre. He wrote these wonderful letters home about which paintings he liked and which he thought were overrated, which school of painting he responded to. And honestly, no graduate student there to uh, become an art historian could have written anything. And he wrote them to his sister and his father, knowing they wanted to hear about it. But greatest of all are the letters he wrote from Le Mans about the incredible cathedral at Le Mans, which nobody ever writes about, but he responded to with a wholehearted awe and detail about 
this cathedral, which is both Romanesque and Gothic. And that's one of the reasons he loved it, because he could see so much history. He was instrumental in bringing the modern age, the the age of flying into the world. And then he was so just enthralled with the wonders of the culture of the past. Well, he talks about how in the Gothic nave, it goes up and up to a clear story where there's magnificent stained glass windows letting the light in. And he said, and you sense this desire to reach for the sky. Well, of course, that's exactly what he's doing. That's what Gothic was all about, I think. And that's what Orville and Wilbur were all about. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullough, his latest book, The Wright Brothers. David, when I I hear you talk and when I I read through the book, it's like you must have been like a kid in a candy shop with all these original letters to read. I mean, it must have been... Oh, my. For most of my books, I've depended tremendously on the letters, the letters of John Adams and Abigail, the letters of Harry Truman, because you, they bring you into their private world. You can get to know these people in many ways better than you can know people in real life, because in real life, you don't get to read other people's mail. We don't write letters anymore, for one thing. But these letters are... They're works of art. They are, and they're humbling because you realize once again, they never even finished high school. What a blessing that we have these. Oh my goodness. It's conceivable they wouldn't have written and then all of this richness behind the story. And and their love of learning, their love. Years later, Orville Wright was interviewed and he said, would you agree with so many Americans that you and your brother are the perfect example of how far one can go in life, an American could go in life, who's had no advantages growing up. And he said, we grew up with the greatest advantage you could possibly have. And the man said, well, what is that, sir? And he said, we grew up in a home which stimulated and encouraged intellectual curiosity. David, let's just say you could have dinner with Wilbur or Orville tonight. Yes. What would you love to ask them, and and, uh, what's one thing you'd like to tell them? Well, I'd love to hear more about Wilbur's feelings on the great cathedral at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. And what what was in his spirit that so responded to the art and architecture of his travels. And then I'd love to ask Orville why he refused to speak to Catherine, the sister, again, when she announced she was going to get married. He thought she'd betrayed him, but I would like to hear, and he comes across as the selfish, mean guy, which he wasn't. He really wasn't. I'd like to hear his side of the story. If you could just tell them one thing, a hundred years after their their work, what would you tell them? I'd tell them that my admiration for them as human beings is greater even than my absolute awe at the working of their minds. Beautiful. David McCullough, thank you so much for all your work, and most recently, the Wright Brothers. Thank you, sir. It's a real nice way to spend a day in Dayton, Ohio. On a lazy Sunday afternoon in 1903. Up next, Tim Neville takes us with him into Central Asia for some of the surprises he found along the post-Soviet era Silk Road of the 21st century. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Halo, nama saya Elizabeth Pisani dan saya seseorang Inggris tetapi lama di Indonesia dan sangat suka jalan di Indonesia. Dan sekarang ini, saya jalan sama Rick Steves. That was Bahasa Indonesia, which is the national language of Indonesia. And what I was saying was, hi, my name is Elizabeth Pisani and I'm English, but uh, I travel a lot in Indonesia. And right now, I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Hello, nama saya Elizabeth Pisani. Saya seseorang Inggris, tapi lama jalan di Indonesia. Dan sekarang ini, saya jalan bersama Rick Steves. For more than 15 centuries, caravans crisscrossed the deserts and grasslands of Central Asia as they carried merchandise like silks, tea, and spices from China to Europe and Egypt. The historic network of trading routes across this region is often referred to as the Silk Road. Tim Neville's just returned from a trip there. He's come back with stories from today's nations of Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, where he even found a strange city being built almost entirely of marble. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. Why did you go to this region? Uh, What were you hoping to find? This area has always been a fascination for me. Most recently, in 2007, I had an assignment to Mongolia, 
And in preparing for that assignment, I did a lot of reading. And you read about these Mongol hordes marching west and going through these magnificent cities where, you know, this was the center of learning and of civilization for a very long time. And the Mongols talk about discovering Europe and finding Europe and being rather disgusted with how poor and backwards it was at the time. So they came back to this this region in Central Asia. So when I had an opportunity to join a group of travelers who had signed up for a trip through the New York Times to go and give them a, a series of lectures and experience this area, I signed on immediately and was definitely rewarded. You know, when you mentioned that, uh, for the whole region, it really is a history shaped by invasions, right? You have the Mongol horde stuff, but what other invasions have shaped it? Oh, my goodness. So a friend of mine, a colleague over at Wilderness Travel, um, when I told her that I was going there, she said, you know what you should do? You should write down a list of all the armies that have been through there and put each one on one index card. And when you unfurl it, it will, like, take up the floor of the bus. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a mess. I mean, Alexander the Great went through there. You had you know, various Persian kings and shahs moving through there. And then, of course, most recently, the Russians. Yeah, we always are so Eurocentric, and we think, you know, Europe invented uh, the printing press and all, you know, Europe sort of set the standards. But, of course, there was stuff going on beyond Europe that would be uh, at least as exciting. When you go to the stands, are you able to find anything of the grandeur of those days when, when it really was something that could be admired from Europe? Oh, absolutely. So the very first thing you notice when you get into a city like Bukhara or Kiva you know, you're walking through the, these old towns and they've been, you know, destroyed and burned and rebuilt and so on. But you have portions of them that remain that have been there, you know, since the seventh century even. And mm. so you're walking along these tight alleyways of, you know, mud brick homes and walls and shops. And there'll be these beautiful uh, minarets and madrasas and mosques with blue tile domes painted in, you know, aquamarine and indigo and and you know you'll come across like a little alcove, let's say, with Moroccan walnut door, just mm. immaculately engraved and and whittled into these fantastic designs. And you peek your head in, and they'll you'll find craftsmen, you know, working on on various like book stands or whatever that kind of thing. And you think, my word, I've walked into a fable. Oh my, walked into a fable. I love it. It's it is truly exceptional. It's one of the most exotic places I've been. Tim, when you think about the history and and when you travel. Sometimes it puts the context of today's, you know, um, shocking news into a different context. I would imagine when you go to a place like Uzbekistan and Bukhara and so on, you think it's remarkable that these places have survived at all. You know, we see what's going on with the Taliban or ISIS, and they've lived through 2,000 years of, of these kind of iconoclasts coming in. And what are your thoughts on that when you, when you walk through the streets of Bukhara? You know, a lot of the cities definitely have suffered the ravages of armies and despots and so on. One of the most obvious legacies you see now is the Soviet legacy. So in some of these cities, you you know, you have sort of the, the day-to-day portions of the city where the everyday people live. And, and they're very Soviet-feeling, very large streets and sort of drab buildings. And Although they, there are beautification projects to, to kind of bring some color back into these areas. But the old portions of these cities... A lot of it has survived remarkably intact or it's been rebuilt over the centuries. And so you do have a lot of the key sites that have miraculously survived, you know, or or if they haven't survived completely as they were, you know, built in the 700s, you know, they've been restored to that level of grandeur. Islam has been there for over a thousand years. Is is it a a heavy presence of Islam or or is it it more of a, like in Iran, you have the the beautiful uh, poetic Islam. I would say it's more of a poetic Islam. That's a great way to describe that. Um, you have about 75% of the population in Uzbekistan would say that they are Muslim, but only 30% of those, roughly a third of them, are actually practicing Muslims. And so it's, it's kind of the religion that only matters at you know funerals and weddings, basically. And so it is a, a much more gentler tolerant brand of Islam than what we might think of when we hear, you know, Stan in a country. And so it's very, uh, very welcoming, even as a foreigner, you know, you can walk around with your legs showing. I mean, it's, you, you want to be respectful, of course, because I feel as travelers, we're often held to a higher standard. But, you, you know, you can, you can drink, you know, before every meal, we would have, you know, a shot of vodka or beer. Who wants beer? And half the group's hands would go up, you know, so it's very, very tolerant in that way. Now, Tim, when you're, when you're a historian like you and a, and a traveler, 
it seems like uh, you have a little broader context or, or sense of history. I mean, today, you know, we think of what's going on with ISIS and the Taliban blowing up uh, temples or whatever in Afghanistan and, and these horrible beheadings. But when you travel, you, you realize... So what else is new? I mean, when you go to Uzbekistan and Bukhara and so on. Well, you know, that's not quite it. Like, there's a huge difference between Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and, say, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, you know, the, the former Soviet republics, there are five of them, they all sort of suffer from this Stan stigma. You know, we hear Stan and we think, oh, no, extremists, we're going to go there and then just be, you know, hated and that is not the case at all in Uzbekistan and especially Turkmenistan. Th those were two of the friendliest countries I've ever been to. Now, they are Muslim. And like, for instance, in Uzbekistan, I believe the figure is it's 75% Muslim. But I never once heard the call to prayer. Like in Cairo, you go to Cairo and it's just at dawn, 40 mosques or, or you know, minarets and, the, you know, just all the call to prayer. And it's wonderful. It's just this full on just chaos. In mm. Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, I never heard that once. Now, about 30% of the people are actually practicing Muslims. So it's a very moderate, very tolerant place. In fact, there's a lot of um, Sufism, you know, which is sort of this mystic component of, of Islam. And so when you go to some of these mosques in ancient sites, you'll see people will come and they'll walk three times around them. And then they'll touch the building and they touch their face as if they're like pulling the blessings out of these buildings onto their faces. And then they'll leave little gifts. And every time you walk into one of these places, you are, you are absolutely welcome to come in. And in fact, there'll be little uh, platters of sweets and breads that guests, even you, you know, as a foreigner, are encouraged to nibble on because it's hot and you're hungry and you're seeing these sights. And it's just this very welcoming atmosphere. So that's a warm and fragrant and gentle kind of ambience created by the culture and the religion. Travel writer Tim Neville's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves from his home base in Bend, Oregon. Tim writes for Outside Magazine and for the New York Times in their travel section. He's just back from investigating the sites of Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. His website is timneville.net. Next week, travel documentary producer David Adams will share his historical finds in the stands of Central Asia as he follows the path of Alexander the Great. Tim, when you think about the stands, I mean, for most of us, it's just they're the stands. How are Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan distinct from each other? What kind of welcome did you receive? And was it like uh, consistent or are they, how different are they? That's a great question. Let me, let me start off first by talking about some of their similarities. And so this whole region of Central Asia is largely a Turkic uh, civilization. And by that, I mean they're Turkic people. So they speak a very similar language as they do in Turkey, for instance. So they share a lot of the same values and a lot of the same cultural moments, I guess. And so it wasn't until Stalin, really, that these countries, that the borders that we know of them, you know, as we see them today, were formed. Before that, it was just, it was much more tribal, much more, you know, a Khan, for instance, would control a certain region and he may be friends with the next Khan over or he may be at perpetual war with him. So, but today, you know, both countries still are dealing with the Soviet legacy, for sure. You see that everywhere. But, you know, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, if, I, if you were to put them side by side, Turkmenistan is by far the less traveled country. I think 10,000 tourists come into this country every year. You know, I live in Bend, Oregon, where we have, on a summer day, 20,000 tourists every day. Mm -hmm. So there's this very real sense in Turkmenistan of, like, you're going someplace that not a lot of people have seen or done. And so, I mean, it just adds a certain excitement to that, of course. And then Uzbekistan, on the other hand, has a lot of the great cities of the Silk Road, you know, Samarkand, Bukhara, Kiva. These cities were just icons of like learning. They were obviously crossroads for civilizations, as you said. So you had a lot of learning going on. You had a lot of trade happening there. And so you still have a sense of that vibrancy when you walk into these cities. So Uzbekistan has your standard great cities and beautiful historic and cultural sites. Turkmenistan, on the other hand, is much less touristed. To me, it's more mysterious. I mean, its reputation is like some bizarre totalitarian theme park. Don't they have a government that reminds you more of uh, North Korea? You know, that's funny you say that because I, I went to North Korea a couple of years ago. And so I was really interested in seeing Ashgabat, the capital of Turkmenistan, because people often liken that to... Pyongyang. 
And, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint, but it's really not quite that way. I mean, there are some elements that the government, there is cult of personality-ish. You, you know, you have a, a series of leaders there who have gone to great lengths to build monuments to themselves and their pictures are everywhere. And, you know, Ashgabat now is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the city that uses the most marble. So you have this immense city. It's about one million people or so. But the actual footprint of the city has doubled in size over the past 15 years, let's say, whereas the population itself is only growing maybe hmm. 2% a year. So you end up with these massive marble buildings, just hundreds of them with really nobody in them. They're just building to build because they're sitting on trillions of cubic meters of natural gas. So it's like they have their own bank and they're just, well, let's build more buildings. And so, you know, as a tourist, you come in and it does have a, this sort of theme park feel because all the monuments are kind of a little bizarre. You know, the buildings are obviously strange, but... Then you meet the people and your heart just melts because it's only been really in the last 10 years or so that Turkmen's have been allowed to, one, travel a little bit. It's still very difficult for them, but that tourists have been allowed to come in. And so, you know, everywhere you go in Turkmenistan, like people are waving at you. They want you to take their picture. English is still very difficult for a lot of people, but they'll still find a way to chat with you. And you know, they're very curious about where you're from and you can ask them questions and they're dressed in these beautiful traditional outfits with these great headdresses. And honestly, I, I've been to close to 70 countries now and my heart hasn't melted the way it has in Turkmenistan in a very, very long time. Wow, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Neville, travel writer who writes a lot for the New York Times travel section, reporting on Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Tim, in just the short amount of time we have left, can you very, in a very practical nutshell, and if you can talk about both Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan together, talk about the, the nitty-gritty, uh, visas, language, how sure. expensive is it, uh, accommodations, uh, can we do this uh, as a sort of a routine 10-day vacation? Sure. You know, most people who go to Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, you're not just getting your first passport and being like, okay, I'm going to go to Uzbekistan. You know, you chances are you've been to a lot of other places and, and now, you know, Central Asia is starting to, to capture your interest. And so in that regard, it's not the easiest place to travel. For instance, Turkmenistan has a very strict visa policy. You have to, and same with Uzbekistan too, but it, it, Uzbekistan's a little bit easier. In both instances, you need to get what's called a letter of invitation, and you can usually get those by going through a tour operator. And then within Turkmenistan, you're not allowed to actually be in the country without a guide. You have to have a guide with you. So that was like the Soviet Union in the old days, and that's like Iran today. You can go there, but you have to have a guide who gives you who gets these hoops, and then they know where you are, right? Right, exactly. You know, and there's pros and cons to uh, both sides of that, obviously. But the big pro to me is you want to have a guide in these areas because there is a language issue, although the younger population, the younger generations are now speaking more and more English. And if you speak Russian, then you're golden. You can go anywhere. You know, that's sort of the second mm -hmm. native language, as people say there. So did you enjoy your guide in Turkmenistan, or was he like uh, some sort of a policeman that was following you around? Oh, no, I absolutely loved him. I, we had two in Turkmenistan, and they can tell you just fantastic stories. Like mm -hmm. one guide we had, you know, he had fled. His family didn't want to do the collectivization of Stalin and ended up fleeing and ended up in Afghanistan, which was terrible, and then Pakistan, which is also terrible. And and as soon as Turkmenistan got its independence in 1991, he was practically the first in line to get his passport back. Is Uzbekistan similar to that where you have to have a guide? You know, Uzbekistan, I don't think you actually have to have a guide. I would highly recommend it, though, as well, because it's difficult to navigate, especially if you are going to be relying on public transportation. And the bureaucracy there is a constant reminder of why, in part, the Soviet Union failed. I mean... You go through some of these formalities at like border crossings, for instance, and you're signing the same piece of paper seven times. And okay, I'm going to get a box guide. It sounds like I want a guide there just to get me through all the hoops. And it's probably yeah. not, it's pretty reasonably priced. What would you pay per day for a guide? So again, I think that would depend, but you could probably expect to pay about fifty dollars a day for a guide. Probably so it's a not great, cheap. a great um, business for them and a great value for the traveler. Oh, indeed, indeed. What you will get out of that, you could That's never good. get on, on your own. Well, this is so, I, I want to go. This is so exciting. 
Tim Neville, thank you so much for your insight into Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. It sounds like these are rewarding countries where tourism is not as freewheeling as we might be used to, and it just makes a lot of sense to hire a private guide. Can you just close us out with one example, let's say in Uzbekistan, where having a private guide really, really helped out? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So in Bukhara, it was really, really hot this one day, and so we waited till getting close to sunset, and our guide grabbed a couple of our uh, the folks in our group, and we went into this area called the Ark, which is the old sort of ruling area of the city. And we'd been there earlier in that day, and we had seen you know what what most people see. But he's like, no, 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 come here. And he pushed open this metal door, this nondescript kind of crummy metal door, and there before us lay the rest of this Ark. So I hadn't realized that only maybe a tenth of it had been restored and preserved. And so he opens up this door and there lies the rest of it. And so we walked out along these crumbling buildings and ramparts and so on and like walked for maybe, you know, a quarter of a mile and got up onto the kind of this ancient wall. And there before us stretched the entire city and you could just see the domes glimmering in the the sunset, the tall minarets that, that used to have lights on them, you know, like candlelight to guide the caravans in across the desert and just standing there looking at this. You know, it's one of those things that you just, that you'll just never forget. I mean, it's with you. Just that image of candles on minarets guiding Silk Road caravans. I love it. You have it really humanized and made real two dimensions of the stands that for most of us are just the stands. Tim Neville, thanks so much and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Yaxshilik murad bar har dilga ming jonim beray Yaxshilarga qo'lda bor yo'g'im imkonim Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. We get web support from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Maureen Cole at Simon & Schuster and to Tim Underwood Productions in Bend, Oregon for their help this week. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.